0: From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Uh, who I've known
1: for going on forty years now, uh, and some new ones that I've met uh, and continue to meet uh, on my visits over here to London. Uh, so it's nice to see you all. Thank you for coming out uh, and. I'll let you, uh, Whoop! I already screwed it up. Um, September 11, 2001, as Tim said, we all remember where we were. Uh, It was a watershed event in the history of the world, certainly in the history of the United States. Uh, It changed the world, I think, forever and uh, started a war that continues to rage uh, uh, on terrorism. Um, it caused, as Tim also said, an enormous loss of life, property damage, uh, business losses, etc. Um, for those of us that lived in New York, uh, it was particularly grueling because uh, we all lost friends. I went to 10 different funerals, including the one from my godson, who was employed by Cantor Fitzgerald and was in the North Tower uh, on Flight 11. Uh, struck it Um, so what happened uh, was a cataclysmic event um, that put a strain on the aviation insurance market and put a strain on the American legal system Uh, a 200 year old system that now had had to deal with the use of aircraft as weapons of mass destruction so uh This evening, uh, as Tim said, this litigation lasted 16 years. Uh, I'm going to try and walk you through uh, the litigation in less than an hour. So (laughs) good luck. But, uh, well, let's talk about the losses. Uh, Four Boeing aircraft destroyed, two 767s, two 757s, almost 3,000 people killed. Uh, both the, the World Trade Center and, and the flights that uh, crashed into the Pentagon in Shanksville Pennsylvania uh, destroyed the entire World Trade Center complex of five buildings uh, and damaged to uh, many other buildings nearby the total first party and property claims were in excess of $30 billion initially uh, and The liability insurance uh, for the principal defendants, the the two airlines and uh, the security companies, uh, you know, was insufficient to cover them. I mean, the the total, probably if you throw in Boeing and the rest, the total coverage was about seven and a half uh, million that was available. The claims uh, were tenuous at best. Uh, from a legal perspective. Um, But remember, importantly, that back in 2001, uh, the airlines uh, were responsible for their own security. So they were responsible for pre-board passenger screening, not the government. It was the airlines who contracted those responsibilities out to security companies. Um, You can imagine the hourly Wage paid to the screeners themselves was uh, about comparable to what a person working in McDonald's was making. So you're not getting the best quality of screener, or, as I ultimately learned, uh, witnesses. They didn't. They didn't come across too well, um, and so. We had negligent screening claims against the airlines and the security, claim, uh, security companies. Uh, there was a product liability claims against Boeing, based on the fact that the, car, the cockpit door uh, was hardly secure. Everybody in the world had a key that opened it. They all the keys op, one key opened every Boeing cockpit door. Uh, and if you remember back then how flimsy they were, they were easily reachable. And the airport authorities uh, also had claims against them for overall negligent security. As a result, we had a lot of defendants. Um, This is the TSA. Of course, they took over for the airlines shortly after 9-11 and now are in charge of all pre-board screening. a key event after 9/11 happened 10 days after uh, the attacks, when Congress, believe it or not, our Congress enacting something in 10 days, um, enacted the Air Transportation Safety and System Stabilization Act, which created the Victim Compensation Fund, by which all the, the victims, whether they be or be wrongful death claims, personal injury claims could basically go in and apply to a government fund for compensation. It was a fund run by my friend Ken Feinberg, uh, who did an absolutely outstanding job uh, in compensating uh, the 3,000, the families of the 3,000 people who were killed. Uh, And it also, that act, limited the liability of the airlines, security companies, Boeing, any of the potential aviation defendants to the amount of the liability insurance that each carried. So it's important for you to know that the airlines themselves, uh, American and United, had no financial exposure. The um, Air Transportation Act limited the liability not only for compensatory damages, for punitive damages. So even if the plaintiffs were claiming punitive damages, it was limited to the amount of their liability insurance. Uh, This is extremely important uh, to bear in mind as we go through this because although the airlines had no financial risk, they certainly had a reputational risk. Uh, And they didn't want, ultimately, uh, to have a jury fine that uh, they, because of negligent passenger screening uh, at the checkpoint, that they were responsible uh, for 3,000 people being killed and the entire attack on the United States. So um, our initial strategy uh, was to defend the ground-based claims, not not the passenger claims. The airline said, well, we want you to take care of our passengers and the insurers agreed with that Um, but one thing to remember too as you look at the third bullet point here these claims were going to be governed uh, by New York law of duty and proximate cause um, applied to these unprecedented facts Um, and of course the intervening criminal activity of the terrorist was what we argued uh, cut off Uh, that duty, Um, and that while hijackings were foreseeable, certainly, there have been hijackings in the past. Take me to Cuba, yes, the the policy of the federal government and of the airlines was to cooperate with uh, hijackers. You want to go to Cuba? We're going to Cuba. Uh, But never, never in the history of aviation uh, was uh, an aircraft commandeered and uh, to become uh, a weapon of mass destruction. And remember, too, that back in 2001, uh, knives were permitted. Four-inch knives were permitted uh, to go through security. Um, uh, Box cutters were permitted. You could have brought them on. These 19 terrorists did check flights themselves and test flights all around the United States before 9-11 to test the system. They knew what they could get in through security because it was legal. Uh, and so they knew that on that day, those 19 men, the very excellent chance, unless they screwed up some way along the line, they weren't going to be stopped. They weren't going to be stopped. So it was well-rehearsed and well-thought-out. The damage claims, uh, what happened was 95 of the... Victims, mostly death cases, uh, did not go into the victim compensation fund for various reasons. Uh, some were making uh, so much money that they figured they'd risk, and, and it was great risk to them from a liability standpoint, uh, they'd, they'd risk uh, litigation. One, Denny Lewin, he was uh, on flight 11. Uh, about 32 years old, an Israeli-American, was a commando in the Israeli Air Force, Uh, and he was seated in first class when the first terrorist got up um, and started to um, attack the flight attendant. Uh, He got up, but there was a terrorist right behind him who slid his throat. Um, but he was making $100 million. Uh, he made $100 million in the year before his death. Uh, so they decided to sue. Other people decided to sue. But only 95 out of the more than 3,000 people um, uh, did that. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, $30 billion in property damage uh, plus interest, interest starting to run, prejudgment interest starting to run as of September 11, 2001 at 9% per annum. Um, World Trade Center Properties, that's WTCP, World Trade Center Properties, uh, was the owner of the 99-year lease on the World Trade Center complex. Uh, Larry Silverstein, a a well-known real estate developer in New York, was was the uh, uh, head of WTCP, and it was basically his money at stake. Canner Fitzgerald, where my godson worked, um, a Wall Street very famous Wall Street firm. They were on the top floors of uh, the North Tower. Uh, they wanted they made a claim um, of 1.2 billion saying that 658 of our employees were killed, so we're entitled to damages because of that. Um, is really a disguised wrongful death claim, and I'll talk more about that later. It ultimately was dismissed. Um, And because of the lack of adequate insurance coverage uh, to cover all the third party claims that were out there in excess of 30 billion, uh, the plaintiff's lawyers started to stack insurance policies by suing everybody they could. They sued, uh, as I said, Boeing, but they started to sue the airlines who transported the terrorists from one airport to another before they got to Boston Logan to get on the planes or before they got to Newark or whatever. So uh, we had that situation. Those were the damage claims. So as of September 2004, this is what the litigation looked like. Um, initially, one of the associates in my office did this out on butcher paper rolled up by hand, and we ultimately put it on, <coughs> on, a, uh, on a slide like this. But you have all four flights, 77 went into the Pentagon, 11 into one world trade, United 175 into two, United 93 was the one that was crashed uh, into on the ground in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The plaintiffs, reading from left to right, wrongful death and personal injury, Cantor Fitzgerald, World Trade Center, subrogated insurers. The insurers who insured the World Trade Center uh, claim, they had uh, insurance claims of $5.5 billion plus interest. There were other uninsured loss plaintiffs. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey uh, initially filed a claim; they were the owner of the land, um, 2.7 billion. So then you had uh, American, bright Globe, Huntley, bright Those are the four; there are three actually different security companies. The air, various airport authorities, including the Port, Massachusetts Port Authority, and then the non-carriers that I mentioned, carriers like. U.S. Airways, Colgan, uh, you name it—they were—they were sued in order to get enough insurance uh, policies in play. So that's how it looked, September of 2004. Now, ultimately, as I as I told you initially, this this entire litigation was resolved, and I think successfully from the standpoint of both. The insureds, the airlines, security companies, and the insurers and the aviation insurance market. These were the reasons. Um, There was a very close working relationship uh, among the insurers, insureds, and council. We had periodic steering committee meetings in person uh, in New York uh, with the heads of litigation. CEOs of the airlines were involved. On a, on a continuous basis, looking at what the risks were. And with that continuous risk analysis, changing our strategy. Uh, initially, as I said, not to settle uh, the ground victim cases, that ultimately changed due to court ruling. And most importantly, in 2009, an allocation agreement among the Insurers for American United uh, and, the, and their respective security companies to share the liability uh, on a percentage basis that I'll explain in a bit. Uh, the fourth reason was mediation. We use mediation extensively um, to, um, because, frankly, in mediation you can control your own destiny. Uh, in a jury trial, you leave that up to 12 people who are in off the street. So, uh, we tried mediation uh, and used mediation extensively uh, to ultimately resolve this and avoid uh, a jury trial on liability or damages, which, which has, uh, as you know, uh, it, its inherent risks. But, but those, those are the keys to how we got this over. Now. What happened early on in 2003, uh, if you remember I said our our initial strategy was to uh, fight all the ground victim cases, right? Including subrogated insurers, business interruption claims, et cetera. Um, But so we made a motion to dismiss those claims in 2003. And that's a a motion to dismiss is is a motion based on the law, saying no matter, accept everything the plaintiffs say in their complaint as true, we don't think there's a case as a matter of law. Um, Our main thrust was that uh, the airlines and security companies did not owe a duty, a legal duty, Uh, to uh, ground victims uh, of of the terrorist attacks. Um, And the the plaintiffs had to show that the aviation defendants were in the best position to protect against a foreseeable risk of harm. And as I said earlier, yeah, hijacking was foreseeable. Uh, We argued uh, strenuously, I might add, that uh, using commercial aircraft as weapons of mass destruction uh, was not foreseeable as a matter of law. Um, Unfortunately, Judge Pellerstein uh, denied the motion uh, without prejudice to uh, renew uh, based on a complete record. Well, we then were off to the races. Uh, You can imagine with 35 defendants Government witnesses that we had to take. There were more than 200, uh, uh, more than 150 depositions, more than uh, 200,000 documents. Um, I think the judge made a big mistake. I think of the 40 judges in the Southern District of New York, 30 of them would have granted that motion to dismiss. Uh, we tried to get him to certify it for an interlocutory appeal. Uh, he wouldn't do that, uh, so we were stuck. We were stuck before uh, Judge Hellerstein, who wanted a full record. Uh, he was, he was a, a good man, um, still is a good man. He was seventy-one or two when this litigation started. Uh, he's still on the bench. Um, but I think he was more uh, rabbinical than judicial in how he looked at this uh, litigation. Um, so uh, everybody sued. World Trade Center Properties, they were a defendant. They sued now as a plaintiff, the Port Authority, et cetera. The, it, was, it was just a watershed event. When he, when he denied that motion, uh, we, we just got more more plaintiffs than we knew what to do with. Um, ultimately we went and settled the 95 death cases and all these numbers that I'm throwing out at you today in terms of dollars uh, are all public. Uh, Judge Hellerstein uh, made us uh, we wanted to seal all the settlements and keep them confidential he said no, no, no. Anything having to do with 9-11 is in the public interest and he published all of them. So we got rid of the death and injury cases. Um, so now we were only going to uh, have the, the property uh, and business interruption claims. The reason why, uh, once again, jury trials. In our country, we have jury trials and civil cases. And juries are, uh, they, <laughs> they're they unpredictable. Um, And the amount of money involved, uh, the amount of reputational risk to the airlines, financial risk to the market was such that we we just didn't want wrongful death and personal injury plaintiffs in the same jury trial as property and business interruption plaintiffs. Um, So this is one of my, I have this on my desk in a little plexiglass thing, and if you can Say, you see all the jurors raising their hand, but the witness, but the lawyer saying to the other, I still say you can never tell which way a jury will go. And I can assure you there's more truth in that than humor. So once we settled the death and injury cases, this is the way the litigation looked in November of 2009. Still uh, a behemoth. So then the next thing was... We wanted to deal with the property uh, people. Um, we had our depositions. We did a, I remember being in court, and uh, the judge said, Okay, I want to know how much uh, damages the property people really had, including subrogated insurers, business interruption claims, et cetera. He said, Do a protocol. I said, Judge, what's a protocol? He said, it's something that you do when I don't have a name for it. And it it ultimately was two years of uh, basically informal and formal discovery of the property um, claims, including the subrogated claims, uh, before we could get down to really what their damages were. And it was about, Legally and factually, I think their real damages for uh, the subrogated insurers uh, was about $4 billion. Um, So we said, okay, let's mediate. Uh, We got Judge John Martin, uh, formerly of the Southern District of New York, uh, uh, to be the mediator. Uh, It was November in December of 2009, uh, took about a month, uh, off and on, uh, mostly mostly on, uh, but we we got a deal. Uh, 1.2 billion uh, out of 4. Point something billion of actual damages that they would have put on the blackboard, as we say, before a jury. Uh, that that were, you know, good, hard damages. Now, that represented a 75% liability discount. Now, what am I talking about there? That number is not quantitative. It's qualitative. And it's what both we, as the defense side, and Bob Clifford, the plaintiff's lawyer, and, and the other plaintiff's lawyers, Uh, believed was a legitimate uh, quantification of the risk that both sides uh, faced uh, if the case were to go to a jury. We still think, and to this day I think Judge Hellerstein was wrong in denying the duty motion, uh, the plaintiff's lawyers thought similarly. They will never admit it. But they thought similarly, and they convinced their clients of that. And as a result, we got a 75% liability discount, meaning, okay, the number we ultimately agreed upon was 75% approximately of what their actual provable damages were. Uh, It was a good result. Um, The key to to that result was an allocation agreement among the insurers for American, United, and their respective security companies. Um, How it was arrived at has nothing to do with culpability of of one defendant versus another uh, or anything like that. It had nothing to do with that. What we did, and what I did with some of my other counsel, was figure out how much property damage was caused by American Flight 11 versus uh, United Flight 175. So because Flight 11 hit the North Tower uh, and caused its collapse, the collapse of of the North Tower caused... uh, approximately eight percent more damage than uh, united 175 so that's how it was arrived at Um, the key is that that agreement among these insurers held throughout the remainder of the litigation uh, and most importantly uh, it held regardless of which defendants were sued by which plaintiffs? Canner Fitzgerald, because of the first lawyers that they handled as plaintiff's lawyers, only sued American Airlines. Most everybody else sued everybody. Um, so American was the only defendant in the Canner Fitzgerald case. But nevertheless, the agreement uh, reached in November of 2009, said regardless of who was sued, these numbers were going to apply. Uh, WTCP Silverstein, of course, they were the they were always the, uh, the the fly in the in the honey during this whole thing. They objected to everything. Uh, it was ridiculous. This was a settlement, uh, but they were claiming that 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 the Air Transportation Act really created a fund and that they were entitled to part of the fund. Well, that, that, was, uh, that was denied by both the district court and the court of appeals. So the settlement um, held, and we were left then after we got rid of uh, all the subrogated insurers, many of whom you were very familiar with. <laughs> it was some money going from these insurers over to some other insurers that you're very familiar with. Um, we had left... World Trade Center Properties, Cedar and Washington, a hotel owner, they had a claim which ultimately went all the way up to the Supreme Court before they lost. It was never argued in the Supreme Court, but they went that way. And Cantor Fitzgerald. Uh, the mediator threw World Trade Center's lawyers out of the mediation. They were too unreasonable. Cantor Fitzgerald was making a legal claim, as I said, based on the deaths of their employees. That was not sustainable in our view. So the mediator said, you're out. Uh, Cedar and Washington did not have what we thought was a legal claim, and that was ultimately dismissed. So, So really we were left with, as of May 2011, after the appeal of our settlement, uh, with the property insurers, um, we were left in 2011 with just Cantor Fitzgerald and World Trade Center properties. So, after the property settlement, uh, what are we going to do? Remember, we want to avoid a jury trial if at all possible uh, on, on both liability and damages. Uh, So we looked at the damages of both, the alleged damages, of World Trade Center properties and Karen Fitzgerald and we decided to zero in on that. Um, And I did what I think uh, was probably my best lawyering uh, in that I persuaded Judge Hellerstein uh, to let us do that. I said, look, uh, you don't want to have a liability trial with American Airlines, United Airlines, et cetera. There's no need for that to put us through that because we don't think that these last two defendants have any legally recoverable damages. Uh, So we want to concentrate on that. Don't push us to any liability trial. We're going to make a motion for summary judgment on their damages. Uh, It was, in essence, reverse bifurcation of the case. Um, And uh, he agreed. Um, I wrote a long letter to him explaining how he should do this, and, and he went with it which really was like the game-changer. The duty motion was a game-changer. This was a game-changer because it really went in our favor. Uh, but the exposure was still enormous. Uh, you know, Cantor Fitzgerald and, and uh, World Trade Center Properties were, you know, they were looking for $15 billion or more in damages. And uh, remember that interest was running at 9% per annum from 2001. So... You know, the clock was ticking. Um, Cantor Fitzgerald, um, what we did, um, because as I said, it was really a disguised wrongful death claim. Their initial lawyers made a mistake in how they argued the case. It was wrong. Uh, we made a motion for summary judgment saying you can't, you can't, a corporation cannot claim damages based on wrongful death of its employees. It's just not allowed. That that cause of action belongs to the personal representative of the estate. And uh, the court agreed, uh, but permitted Cantor Fitzgerald to file an amended complaint. Uh, and what they did was they changed their theory. This was now 2011. Uh, they changed their theory and said, okay, um, we'll... we'll We'll reduce our claim to $425 million and we're, we're blaming everything on 9 11, just 9 11, so that if the airlines were found to be liable, of course, then they're responsible for 9 11. Um, interestingly, uh, Howard Lutnick, the CEO of Canner, testified at deposition, and we had him dead to rights with uh, analyst interviews recorded. 9-11 had nothing to do with, uh, you know, we're making more money than we made before 9-11, after 9 It was unbelievable. But once again, that's what they were going to put up on the blackboard uh, in front of a jury. And with prejudgment interest running, it was worth $800 million. Uh, so the judge said, okay, now we're going to have a trial on liability Uh, just in the Kenner-Fitzgerald case. Now, I'm going, whoa, uh, we don't want that, Uh, because, number one, American was the only defendant. Uh, Number two, any judgment in favor of the plaintiffs in that case would have been collateral estoppel res judicata against us in the World Trade Center case, which was still hanging out there, and that was the biggest claim in the entire litigation. So, uh, we, what we did was we attacked their experts. Uh, we attacked the testimony of the CEO. Um, we made, I don't know if you're familiar with the term, the Daubert motion, but saying that to, uh, it's a motion essentially to strike their experts as, as being unreliable. And they were very good motion papers prepared by my co-counsel uh, at Debevoys and Plumpton. Um, they were really, really strong. So I go into court with the plaintiff's lawyer. We're, we're about to go. We've agreed to mediate. He and I have been talking, and, and I think I've got the case settled uh, for $100 million. And um, so he's, he's, we said, we better tell the judge we're going to go mediate. So after the hearing we go up judge can we see you? and go to the sidebar <clears throat> we just want to let you know judge that uh, that uh, we're going to go into mediation try and settle this case. You know Mr. Uh, Shapiro and I have been talking and blah blah blah. Now he's got the Dalbert motions and you know they've been filed. Uh, and as I said they're very strong but there's no decision there hasn't been any argument there hasn't been anything. But what does he say? Off the cuff. He said, yeah, and you know, uh, well, good, good luck with that. And Des, by the way, uh, you know those, the Daubert motions? I I, I think really it's a fact question. I'm, I'm not going to decide them. Uh, you know, I think the jury's going to decide them. Well, uh, guess what? That $100 million that I was thought I had settled went up to $135 million very quickly um, because the plaintiff's lawyer said, look, I heard the judge, you heard the judge. So, uh, But nevertheless, the allocation agreement controlled uh, the insurers for uh, USAIG, the lead insurer for uh, United, and uh, Amlin, who was the lead insurer for uh, Globe Security. They would all agreed that they'd pay their share even though they weren't um, sued. So we then got rid of Fitzgerald, and now in 2014, 13, 14, the only ones left is World Trade Center Properties, the biggest uh, claim in the litigation. Uh, Larry Silverstein, he's, I think now he's about 88, a very uh, prominent real estate developer in New York City. In July of 2001, signed the 99-year net lease for the World Trade Center complex, one buildings, one, two, four, five, and seven. Um, he paid 2.805 billion for the uh, for the 99-year lease. It's important to he didn't own the buildings, right? He owned the 99-year lease on. He got 3.55 billion in insurance uh, per occurrence. And as some of the insurers in this room I know appreciate, uh, there was separate litigation uh, brought by Silverstein against some of his insurers on the grounds that either the slips the cover notes uh, were ambiguous in terms of whether the terrorist attack of September 11, 2001 uh, on the World Trade Center was one occurrence, were two occurrences. It was one terrorist attack, but there were two aircraft involved. Uh, That was litigated separately um, uh, by different law firms, and it went to a trial, and uh, sure enough, they found that some of the language in the policies uh, and the slips and cover notes was ambiguous, and some of the insurers had to pay double, uh, which they did, and which gave Mr. Silverstein uh, 4.91 billion, or a billion three profit, on the deal uh, after he paid the Port Authority. So he made a billion three uh, over and above his uh, initial cost. Um, they still want it. He still wanted another $13.7 billion, and he's (coughs) under New York law uh, for property damage of a house, for example. If your house is destroyed, uh, the law says you get the lesser of the diminution in market value of the house or the replacement cost, whichever is less, the lesser of two. That's New York law. So, the buildings, the World Trade Center buildings were were built in the 60s. Uh, So, obviously, the replacement cost to rebuild the seven buildings that were, uh, five buildings that were destroyed, uh, it was far and above the $2.805 billion that uh, Larry Silverstein paid for the net lease. Now... And the court held that the market value was $2.805 billion because it closed in July of 2001. They didn't come up with any evidence to show that it increased, so that was the market value. Now, it's important, and I think the judge, and maybe we as lawyers, uh, you know, it was a simple argument to equate it to a house being burned down. Uh, because that was the law in the books. That's what uh, all the cases in New York dealt with destroyed property. He was applying that law uh, to the facts of this. And we then argued that because he's recovered more in insurance payments uh, than the diminution in market value, he has no damages under New York law. And so the judge said, okay, I'm going to have a um, non-jury trial on that issue alone. Uh, I'm going to hear expert testimony, and I'm going to make a decision as to whether the $4.1 billion that Silverstein received in insurance payments collaterally offset the diminution in market value of $2.805 billion. Um, and before the trial, um, we sat down to see if I could settle the case with Silverstein's lawyers. And, um, and I crossed the table uh, from his lawyer. I'm looking at him. I said, look, his name was Rich Williamson. I said, look, Rich, um, you want a billion one. He was down to a billion one at that point. I said, I said I've never done this ever to anybody but I'm going to offer you a hundred million dollar to go away. So I don't think you have a case. But the insurers want this done. The Insureds want it done. I, I think it's a gift. You know, take it. No, nope, no, nope, no, nope. no, no. A thousand times no. Uh, we and let me tell you, I had authority to go up to two hundred and fifty or three hundred million to get rid of it at the time. But it wasn't going to. It wasn't going to happen. So we didn't use it, but but we had that authority. Uh, we won the trial. The court held collateral offset. You have no damages, Mr. Silverstein. Go home. Instead of going home, he went to the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals affirmed him, essentially, uh, saying he was right, saying the collateral offset was right. They said, however, you know, you kind of treated this like a... Uh, a house being burned down, and this was a 99-year lease. So we need you, Judge Hellerstein, to recalculate what the value of that uh, 99-year lease was as of September 12th. What was the lease worth then? Was the lease worth zero? Was it worth $2.805 or was it worth some negative number? Um, This is when this all started to get over my head. You know, I was an old airline lawyer, but uh, it got extremely complicated as to what the value, the net present value of a 99-year lease was as of September 12th. Um, The lawyers were confused by the decision. The judge was confused. The judge said, "Well, I've got to look at the leases." That took another year. Uh, we had to do a chart for him. Can you imagine? Single space, 90 pages. Plaintiffs say these are relevant lease provisions. Defense say this: it was it was a mess. Uh, he then issued an opinion in April 2017, uh, which kind of looked like it was in our favor but everybody was scratching their head as to what is what this really means including including the new lawyer hired by mr silverstein who was an excellent lawyer howard shapiro from the wilmer harrell firm um former general counsel of the fbi back when the fbi was doing what the fbi is supposed to be doing um but um he was struggling with it, and and so Howard called me and said we should talk. And he said we had, um, our last demand was $900 million. Uh, we're going to drop down to 275 which is what we would have paid him in 2013. Um, but the key was, once again, risk. There was risk on both sides. He knew it but I knew it. He only had to defeat our motion for summary judgment. Uh, We had to win the motion and win the appeal uh, in order to prevail. We had to run the table, uh, the defense. But if the plaintiffs got our motion for summary judgment based on the damages issues denied, then we were facing a liability and damages trial before jury. Um, now, Shapiro is a good lawyer. He recognized the risks on, our, on his side, but we certainly re- recognized the risks on our side uh, of that jury trial. So it took five months of me going back and forth to him with people over here, um, but ultimately um, we concluded. The settlement in December of this year for uh, the ultimate number was about $95 because of an insurance uh, shortfall. Uh, Once again, that all-important allocation agreement controlled. The same insurers for the same defendants uh, split it up. Uh, We didn't use mediation to settle this. Mediation had failed with Silverstein long ago in 2009. Um, but uh, because I had a good working relationship with the plaintiff's lawyer, uh, we were able to, uh, t- to uh, work it out together. And the settlement in and of itself, of course, represented less than 1% of, of what they wanted initially. They were, they were greedy. Um, they were a greedy party, uh, and ultimately, uh, as you know, Greed doesn't win the day, so September 11 litigation today is a clean slate. It's all over. Um, in review, 16 years it took. Um, you know, as Robert Webb said, "Boy, does you know you can really run a case, can't you?" Uh, but 16 years of litigation, and certainly wasn't just me. Uh, I had a lot of help. Uh, from different law firms, different lawyers, uh, people over here, American Airlines uh, CEOs. I went through I think three different CEOs and general counsels, but uh, they were terrific. Thirty billion in third-party claims, plus nine percent per year. Uh, every claim settled or dismissed without a jury trial, and the total aviation market uh, indemnity payments were less than $2 billion. Um, this is how it broke down. $550 million for the death, $1.2 billion for the property, Cantor Fitzgerald, World Trade Center properties, total defense costs, that's, notice I say, greater than $125 million with the question mark. The, they don't let me be privy to those kind of numbers over here. But uh, I would venture to say it's substantially more than that. You remember, at one point, we had 35 different defendants, some with two or three law firms. So uh, experts, I mean, the experts for the World Trade Center uh, case alone uh, probably were $5 million. So uh, I think that's a very low number. Um, But anyhow, uh, I bring you back to those same keys to how it was resolved successfully, Uh, continuous risk analysis and and changing strategy. Uh, The allocation agreement, I I, I can't emphasize enough how important that was. Uh, Mediation worked uh, when it did. And all importantly, um, we avoided uh, what could have been a real disaster, both financially and reputationally, it was a, a jury trial. Our focus groups—we had, I don't know how many focus groups we we did before different uh, mock juries, and they were all over the lot. I mean, some gave damages, some didn't. Uh, they were all very sympathetic, and it it actually boiled down to whoever, which lawyer was arguing which side um, in, in these focus groups. It just just reinforced what the point that I'm making to you is that. Uh, It it just is too risky to take 12 people off the street and have them decide something as emotionally uh, uh, wrenching as 9-11. So that was it. Uh, It was certainly my biggest case. It was certainly my longest case. Um, And it definitely is my last case. So (laughs) thank you very much.